Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Square Ball Podcast. Hiya, this is Dan from the Square Ball Podcast. Welcome to this episode of The Extra Ball, where we are breaking with our usual weekly tradition and bringing you our interview with John Helm in full. If you don't know who John Helm is, he's the guy who provided the voice for so much of the 1989-90 race for the title VHS. And he uttered these immortal words. Sterling, again it'll be towards Chapman, headed out. And now McAllister back from Strachan. Here's Strachan again. Have you ever seen a better goal? And have you ever seen one better time? And Gordon Strachan with his 18th goal of this memorable season at Ellen Road may well have struck the richest goal of his career. Now, John is a commentary legend. He's done so many sports, covered so many clubs, and he welcomed us into his home and we sat down and chatted for the best part of two hours and we decided to kind of cam the recording after two hours because we could have, I mean, we could have stayed there for double, no word of a lie, but um, we thought we'd taken up quite enough of his time. But this is great. We chat all the things about Leeds United from John Charles, Don Reavy, Brian Clough, uh, through Wilco, into the modern era, Radrazani, Bielsa, and it's enlightening just to hear somebody so knowledgeable deliver this great, great chat. You're going to love it as a Leeds fan, as a football fan, as a sports fan, whatever it might be. So it was me, it was Michael, it was Moscow. I went to see John Helm and we kicked things off by thanking John for welcoming us into his home. Yeah, I don't let anybody in, you know. <laughs> Thanks for the entry fee. Uh, you've been commentating for many years. How would you describe yourself then if you were doing a CV, John? In the box at the top to describe yourself. Normal bloke. A very, very normal bloke who's had a very happy life. That's how I'd describe myself. Commentating for nearly 60 years, is that right? Uh, August the 17th, 1959 was my first working day. That was on a newspaper in Shipley. Uh, my first actual commentary would have been in 1970 when I was working for BBC Radio Leeds. And how many games have you commentated on now then? It's around about 5,500, so I'm getting the hang of it. I'm, I'm hoping to get it right one day. And do you feel like you're still learning every single day? Is very that- much so, especially with VAR. Uh, it's true, though. That is uh, a very true statement because every match is different. Every player is different. They look different nowadays. Uh, and you never, ever stop learning as a professional, provided you are professional. Every game you go into, you actually hope to get something new out of it. And how's it changed over the sort of 60 years that you've been covering football and your commentary um, career as well? Well, colossally, for a start, it used to be 1-11, to 11, which was nice and easy. Now, as you get number 89 coming on as a substitute, the game is so much quicker. Uh, I talk to a lot of old players and some of them 
Well, they all say, oh, you know, it's not as good a game as it was in my day and players from my day would have survived. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have survived today because they're so athletic. Uh, I mean, they are just almost freakish, some of the players, how fit they are. I mean, they can run all day. They're bigger, they're stronger. When I first started watching Leeds United, John Charles stood out because he was a giant among small men. That was partly the reason he was, for me, one of the best players there's ever been. Um, so it, it's changed in the way that uh, the players look, in the way they run, the way they train, the way they eat. The preparation is totally different. And for a commentator, even that's changed because of things like VAR. Do you remember then sitting there with your first live commentary mic, just about to open the fader? How was that? Funnily, I do, because it wasn't even football. It was a rugby league match. I got asked by uh, Radio Leeds to uh, commentate Dewsbury versus Bradford Northern. They were Bradford Northern in those days. I went down half a lager because I was a bit nervous. And uh, I sat there and I thought, oh, my goodness gracious me. And then I started. I, I felt really comfortable. It must have been the lager having a quick effect. Um, and I, I felt straight into it. I felt really happy at the microphone. And within a pool, within a month, I'd been offered a permanent job at Radio Leeds. Perfect. So your first involvement with Leeds, was it around the John Charles era? First time I ever saw Leeds United was because I'm a, most people know I'm a Bradford Park Avenue boy. I was born and brought up in Bradford and they were always my first love, still my first love and vice president. But there was a day in 1955, I think it was, where Avenue were away at somewhere like Torquay. There was no way I was going to go down there. And I'd heard about this giant of a man, this great footballer called John Charles. And I decided to hop on the train. It was about two or three trains in those days to go to Ellen Road. And I will never, ever forget the day. Leeds played Portsmouth. They won 4-1. John Charles scored two. Keith Ripley scored two. And John Charles, I swear to you, because I was a little boy, I was a boy behind the net, he scored with a header from 30 yards and the ball was still going up when it flew beyond Norman or Pritchard, the Portsmouth goalkeeper just beneath the crossbar. It was still on the way up from 30 yards out. And what was he like then, John Charles? Did you get a chance to meet him and spend time with him? John Charles came as a surprise guest to my 60th birthday. Now that tells you everything you need to know about a true legend of the game. He was, as a footballer, he was a colossus. He, honestly, he was an absolute, he just got the ball and just strode through people. People were sitting down in his weight. They couldn't get near him. The best header of a ball I ever saw. He's still voted today the greatest ever foreign footballer ever in Italy as a centre forward and a centre half. As a man, John won't mind me telling you this. He wasn't the most intelligent. He wasn't a bright boy. He'd come up from South Wales and had a great education, but he had a heart of gold and he used to love a glass of red wine. That was the other thing he always used to say about, ah, it's good for the heart, good for the heart, Boyle. <laughs> and I spoke at his funeral and uh, when there were honestly hundreds there, if not thousands, including Alex Ferguson, to be fair to him, he came across. And he agrees with me, by the way, that John Charles is possibly the greatest footballer ever ahead of Pele, Maradona, Cruyff, Messi, the lot. It's quite an accolade, isn't it? Was it all strength then or was the skill involved in his game? Oh, it was a lot of skill as well. Uh, and the reason he's loved in Italy was because he was on a hat-trick. He scored two in the local derby for Juventus against Torino and he was about to put the ball into the net for his hat-trick and he spotted that a Torino defender was lying down seriously hurt. So he just put the ball out of play deliberately and became a legend in Turin uh, for the Torino club as well as for Juventus just because of his incredible sportsmanship. Oh, he, he was a vastly skillful player. He scored 42 goals in one season, playing most of it at centre-half. How good is that? It is difficult to, when you talk about how much the game has changed to try and explain to people how good John Charles was from 50, 60 years ago. But that, uh, what's crazy at Leeds is he was doing a lot of that in Division 2 and 
Leeds had, the, even then, they were talking about him as the best player in the world. But because there was no financial advantage to move into the first division because uh, of the maximum wage, you wouldn't earn any more money. He just he just played for us for five years trying to get Leeds out of uh, out of the second division, and that's trying to explain that to people now that you could have you could have Messi playing for you when you're in Division Two is just um, it's I think that's part of why it's difficult to communicate it now. It's rather cruel to suggest that he was a one-man team, but that's the way Leeds United were referred to. Without John Charles, they would have gone down. No, no question about it. You know, he kept them where they were. And, of course, they needed the money, I suppose. They'd had a fire at the, at the stadium as well. So when he was sold for, was it 60-something thousand pounds, uh, they were desperate for the money. But even when he went to Italy, he wasn't on big money, you know, in uh, in Italy. Not colossal money, well, not by today's standards. But you're right, and you, you don't get one-man teams nowadays days do. Every team in the Premier League has got four or five star names. Well, dare I say, apart from Huddersfield Town last season. Uh, but no, they, they really have, you know, whereas John Charles, you looked around the rest of the team, there's some good players, decent players, but oof, nowhere near his, his level. And what do you remember the transition was like from the John Charles era towards Don Revie? What was that like? A bit dismal at times. Um, you thought, is this club ever going to make it? Because, uh, you know, there were people like Big Jack were, were there and it was a talent bursting to get out, but surrounded by other players who weren't as good or not as professional. And so the, the club was on a bit of a downward spiral in some ways. And it was it was a tired old stadium as well. So when Don Revie came in, I mean, it was just a massive injection. It took him a, a little while, of course, to... Uh, implant his uh, ways and his thinking onto the club. But th those were pretty forgettable years, dare I put it that way. Forgettable years between the, the John Charles going and the Don Revie era. And then he all really sparked into life in one match against Swansea City. And I was talking to the man only the other day about this. Norman Hunter, Paul Reaney, Rod Johnson all made their debuts on the same day uh, you know, I think they won two 0 at Swansea, and that was the catalyst for the start of the Riviera, really. And then in came people like Bobby Collins, and it, it, it took off from there. What was it that you think that Revie did to Leeds? Made them professional. Um, yes, his superstitions probably dragged them back a little bit. They, they should have won more, uh, but he was a, an amazing motivator, an amazing uh, family man because he. Managed to somehow bring everybody together within the club so that everybody was fighting for the same cause. You will not find one player from that era who has a bad word about Don Revie or Revy as they love to call him behind his back. Um, you know, Big Jack could be troublesome. Big Big Jack was a handful. Uh, and Don Revie straight away said, you're going to have to stop calling me Jack. I'm gaffer or boss, you know, and, and he laid down the law, but he looked after every single one of those players. And funny st little story here. You've just met my wife, right? When I started work at Radio Leeds, on my very first day, I had to go and interview Don Revy. And I'd only met him in the amazing match at Liverpool when Leeds won the title, when I was working on the Yorkshire Evening Post. Anyway, he said it was, it was about a possible move for him to another club. And he said, I can't talk about that. I said, but look, I've got to have something done on tape, you know. And he was good. He gave me two minutes without you know, the usual sort of thing about, oh, I'm committed to Leeds United, and that's all rumour, and all those sort of things. And um, three days later, my wife got a bunch of flowers. She was expecting one of our children. And Don Revy had said, who's this guy who's come from Radio Leeds to interview me? Found out about me, found that my wife was about to give birth and sent some flowers. And that's the attention to detail of Don Revy, of 
with everybody he was in touch with. You know, he would know the wives of the bloke on the gate or the man at the turnstile, the fella selling the, in the ticket office, the groundsman. That was his big secret. He, he created the family. Do you think that sort of thing's still possible at a club or is that, are there too many people now at football clubs for that to really be the case that one man can, can run the whole thing? I think it's very difficult. I think it depends on the level of club. It's possible at a, a lower division club. It's a Premier League club. I always remember Jim Smith, um, former Derby County manager, telling me how the role had changed dramatically. When I used to go to Derby, I was used to sit down and have a prawn sandwich and a cup of coffee before the game with, with Jim. <clears throat> About two years later, he said, I've no chance now. He said, because I've got to go and speak to the sponsors. I've got to speak to the chairman. I've got a player knocking on my door. Why is he not in the team? Uh, and so many roles to fulfill, both commercially, media-wise, team-wise. That They're hours. They put in far more hours than they ever used to do. So the only way that is possible would be at a... A lower division club, uh, which is still a family-run club, dare I say, a Gillingham or a Leighton Orient or somewhere like that. I think it's that is still possible. Do you think the key to any sort of success in football, even still these days, is a sense of unity and togetherness? I think most successful teams have continuity. There's no question about that. This business of firing managers after three months or six results is absolutely crazy. Sometimes they realise they've got it wrong, as Bradford City did right at the start of last season. Sometimes there are a lot of things that we don't know about. But continuity is absolutely vital, you know. And, uh, I mean, everybody quotes the Ferguson story, how he was on the verge of the sack and Mark Robbins saved his job and then they went on uh, to incredible success. Um, but there's no question about it that players have to get to know one another. You know, I'm involved with Bradford Park Avenue. We had a nightmare defensively last night because we just brought in a new centre-half who didn't know how to play with the other two. Uh, but in three or four matches' time, uh, you'd hope that they've settled down and gelled. So, yeah, continuity, both on the field and off the field. I'm sorry to quote Bradford City again last year, but they had an utter nightmare, mostly because one of the blokes who was running the club was not doing the job properly. And uh, there was no continuity, so that created a poor atmosphere in the dressing room, on the pitch, absolutely everywhere, and uh, amongst the fans. And you've got to keep the fans on board as well. The fans are hugely important, and that often is underestimated. Do you think those are the things that went wrong for Leeds when you think about uh, Bates, Chilino, GFH? There was a lack of continuity. It was just constant churn and uh, chaos almost. <laughs> chaos is a good word, yeah. And a succession of chairmen who... I'll be honest, didn't really care about the fans. They, they weren't that bothered, you know. They were bothered about maybe the finances. They were bothered about results, of course they were. But, I mean, Ken Bates, did he ever go to a supporters club meeting? I'm not saying he was a bad man, but he, I don't think he... You can say he was a bad man, it's fine. Okay, yeah, right. <laughs> he, didn't forge a resp uh, he didn't forge any relationship whatsoever with the fans. Chilino certainly didn't, you know. So he was been. I remember... I, I, whenever I go to Ellen Road, they often get me up on the stage before the game with Keith Hanvey in the hospitality suites to do a little chat. And he told me that not one manager had been up there to speak to the fans since, I think it was Simon Grayson. Not one, you know, I'm about to have had Steve Evans, Neil Warnock, you know, the bloke from Denmark and Norway, whatever. you forget them, don't you? There have been so many. Again, no continuity. So, yeah, it was a big downfall for Leeds, but sometimes these owners just don't recognise that. And, you know, you can't be having three different managers in a season. We can try. <laughs> Returning to, to Revy then, what was your relationship like after that initial meeting? So you did the interview, 
He sent the flowers. Where did you go from there? It was brilliant because uh, he said to me, I'll never forget this, uh, every time you want to interview a player, you've got to get my permission. So I thought, oh, blimey, you know, it's going to be a bit, bit of a bind, but I'll go along with that. And uh, in that very first week, it was the week of the uh, Charity Shield, famous match between Leeds United and Liverpool at Wembley, where uh, a couple of Billy Bremner and Kevin Keegan had a bit of a spat. And I'd interviewed Bremner the day before the game, and the interviews went out on the Friday night and they did the game on the Saturday. And on the Sunday morning, I think it was, Don Reavy rang me. He said, you know what I said about uh, interviewing the players? He said, you don't have to worry. You can talk to anybody whenever you want, wherever you want. You don't have to worry. You don't have to ask anybody's permission. In other words, it was a vote of confidence in me. It gave me his trust. And from then on, he was just... Fantastic. Um, I used to interview him every Friday morning down at the ground and I used to interview a different player every week and that carried on throughout the Reaver years, really. And uh, we had a wonderful relationship. He was a different man at home because Elsie wore the pants. So when he was at home, he was a different man. He'd be very courteous, a cup of coffee, cup of tea. When he was in the ground, his seat was always higher than anybody else's. He looked down, he made sure he was looking down so people were terrified of him. And you were always looking up at him with the <laughs> microphone off here somewhere. Uh, but he never, ever shirked anything. He'd talk about anything. He, he was he was absolutely brilliant with me, as were all the players, which is why I say that they all, to a man, worshipped Don Reavy. Can you think of a particular moment when you were speaking to Reavy, maybe in his office, that you kind of went, oh, wow, that's, that's gold, or was there so much of it? Um, no, the one interview I do remember with him was when he became manager of England. I had to ask him if he was going to resign. <laughs> and even then he answered it and he wasn't rude to me. I think um, it was off microphone when he told me things. And I don't mind repeating these things now. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, there was once where I'd switched the microphone off. And he told me the two players he really wanted to sign, who were Nicky Summerby from Manchester City and Alan Ball. He got close to signing both of them. And the biggest reason he wanted them, they could look after themselves. That's what he said to me. And there was another match uh, where they played Ankara Gucci. They played them in Turkey. And a guy called Metin, number eight, had oh, caused a lot of trouble for Leeds. It had been a bit lucky to get away with a 1-1 draw. And he said to me, you know their dangerous player was, don't you? Metin, he said, he won't be on the field after 10 minutes. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's, a bit, that's honest, Don. <laughs> and it would be after him as well. And uh, it, it was right, and Leeds won the tie. <laughs> that's football. It's part of the game. And was that the archetype for a Don Reavy player? Was it somebody who could look after themselves? Oh, absolutely. We all know Johnny Giles could. We all know Norman Hunter, Jack Charlton, Bobby Collins. They could all look after themselves. Tragically, of course, both Paul Reaney and Terry Cooper suffered broken legs. So it was a hard physical game, you know, in those, I'm not saying it's not now, but, you know, you don't hear about the Tommy Smiths and the Norman Hunters and the Peter Stories that we used to do. And I'm sorry, those are just names to you. I realise that. <clears throat> but they were just renowned, hard men. They could all look after themselves, to be honest. They wouldn't be in the professional game if they couldn't. The story that always sticks with me about Bobby Collins, it's the first European away game Leeds ever played. To, it was Torino away, wasn't it? Yeah, and broke his thigh. One tackle broke his thigh and they had to take him to a, it was because they were near the Alps, they took him to a specialist uh, hospital. But he, he came back playing. He was already in his 30s and he, he didn't last long, but to be to brush off a broken Femur. Played into his 40s. Yeah. Played at Oldham Athletic. He played back up in Scotland at Morton, I think it was. Uh, but if you ask any Leeds United player who they learnt how to look after themselves from, it was Bobby Collins. He was 
the archetypal midfield player who knew exactly where to be and where not to be on the field of play. Do you think um, history has judged Don Revie in the right way? Definitely not. He's uh, There have been books written about him. Yes, he had his... His side whereby finance was all important, of course. That's why he became known as Don Reddy's and the fact that he went out to Dubai, <coughs> excuse me, will always count against him. Um, but those in the know in football still regard him as one of probably the top 10 managers of all time. You know, you've obviously got your Fergusons, you've obviously got uh, Wenger and other people in, in the game today, Mourinho for a certain length of time as well, obviously. But Don Revie along with Bill Shankly from that year, were regarded as the two greatest managers. I was going to say, in terms of the, the prep he used to do, how far ahead of, he, of other people was he at that time? Because there's sort of, the certain documents been put online now, which is probably quite standard for these days, but I get the feeling at the time it was a, it was a new thing that he was doing. Yes, it was very much so. He used to send Maurice Lindley, his, his chief scout, to watch other teams and to find out about them as individuals, not just as football players. You know, is he the right type of lad? Does he like a drink? Does he like a smoke? You know, he, he got to know every player in detail. You know, he could have written a CV on just about every player. So in the uh, team talks before the games, yes, he would stress that you're better than they are. That Shankly did. They always used to say, you know, you, <clears throat> we're going to win this match because you're simply better players than they are. But Reevy would say, Ron Harris, he's good down his left-hand side, but not so good down the right-hand side. And whenever they played Liverpool, he and Shankly used to play a little game because Shankly used to regard Paul Madeley as one of the greatest players. So Reevy would deliberately, on Radio Leeds with me on a Friday night, say, shame, Paul Madeley's out tomorrow and Shankly be going like that in his <laughs> hotel room. And then lo and behold, the team would come out at, uh, at uh, two o'clock on the Saturday and Madeley would be playing and Shankly would be cursing. Do you think uh, there may be a legacy going forward in terms of Reeve's relationship to the Middle East and Leeds United? A legacy. <laughs> That's uh, one way to put it, I guess. Because <laughs> Leeds is quite well thought of in the Middle East, isn't it? And because of that. Leeds is well thought of all around the world. I mean, we all know about the Scandinavian support that uh, the club gets. And uh, yeah, there is a bit of a legacy there, I suppose, that they're well regarded in Australasia and places like that. It's funny, I mean, as you know, I, I'm lucky. I travel the world and wherever I go, and I hate to mention that some of these clubs, as as you appreciate, but everybody supports it in Thailand or Singapore or Malaysia. They all support either Man United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, maybe. But there is a hard core often for Leeds United. I'm sometimes staggered by who is a Leeds United supporter. Happened to me the other day, actually, a guy from Guatemala. Guatemala. And I'm having dinner with him, an evening meal out in Poland in a place, a lovely little place. Um, and... We were just chatting about football and he said, oh, well, Leeds going to do this year. I went, well, you know all about Leeds United. And he, he's been a Leeds United fan for donkey's years and he works for FIFA, but he's from Guatemala. And there we are in Lublin in Poland talking about Bielsa and the tactics for the coming season and is Douglas any good as a left back? And, you know, is, is Forshaw still going to be playing? This is It's just bizarre in the middle of Poland talking with a fellow from Guatemala about Adam Forshaw. <laughs> How do you reflect on Brian Clough then when he succeeded Don Revie? Well, my first reflection is it was a nightmare because he arrived and I was, I'd had a tip off that he was going to get the job that day. And so we went down to the first press conference and he ran riot in the press conference. He ran around with a coat hanger pretending to be hitting a cricket ball and we're all, 
what is this? We've had Don Revy for all those years, and soon we've got this maniac who's been let loose in the press room with a coat hanger pretending to thrash a cricket ball about. And then uh, Terry Yorath came dashing in because one of um, Clough's brothers, Bill Lenkett, was had run into Yorath's car in the, in the car park, so he wasn't too amused either. And then I, I told you about doing the uh, the Revy interview every Friday morning. Well, it it got to me interviewing Brian Clough every Friday morning. And the first question will be, hey, what are you having? Uh, I'll have a coffee, please, Brian. No, what are you really having? <laughs> and uh, it carried on from there. Uh, but he was always cooperative. And But he would always say to you, how long do you want? And I'd go, oh, three minutes, please, Brian. And at two minutes 50, he'd go, so that is why I've come here to make Leeds United great again. And I will. And he used to put his finger on the button and say, that's a good out for you. And it was, it was a brilliant interview. I mean, the man was extraordinary and very witty. So you looked forward to interviewing him, but you never knew what he was going to throw at you. You really did. And during those 44 days, uh, I had to cover the story where the players were literally going on strike. A match at Huddersfield, they literally were not going to play because, you know, it upset so many of them. And yet you talk to them now and they say they didn't really fall out with him. They uh, they come to understand why he hadn't brought Peter Taylor and he needed somebody else. And what he, he admitted that, that one mistake was not bringing Taylor with him and two was bringing spies in. I don't mean that. I mean, he'd brought in John McGovern, uh, Duncan McKenzie and John O'Hare, who could all play, but were definitely nowhere in the league. I mean, to compare John McGovern with Billy Brenner is just ridiculous. That's like comparing, you know, Lionel Messi with John Hawley. Uh, with all due respect to John, it was just crazy. So he made a mistake in bringing in these three players from Nottingham Forest. The, the rest of the leads just didn't trust. They were moles, basically. Uh, so he, he, he did make colossal mistakes. Could he have succeeded? No. Absolutely no. I don't think so. I don't know how long he'd have stayed. Not the way he was going about it and not by himself. He needed somebody to calm him down, to put a proper perspective on things. And he just ups- he'd upset everybody, of course, before that, because he came to a York Sport dinner here in Leeds. And uh, he stood up to speak there and he just slaughtered Leeds United, said they were all cheats and they should have been deducted points. So that was never going to go down well with anybody in Leeds, let alone the players. I think on the that famous television programme with Reeve and Clough and when he, he left, Reeve actually hunts him down quite well, I think in retrospect, um, to do with what you were talking about before. Because his point all the way through is saying, why didn't you go on your first date and have a meeting and meet everybody? Because he didn't for ages, he didn't have Peter Taylor there to speak to people. And he, he kind of kept himself separate from everybody. And uh, and there's a, there's a contrasting story of um, Clough on his first day at Derby, I think, sacking two tea ladies for laughing. Whereas Reeve was famous for, he would, he'd be friends with everybody, he'd give them money to put bets on the Grand National and stuff. And Reeve's point was, why didn't, did you go and meet the office staff? Did you go and meet the, the laundry staff? And it gets down to the point where, Clough basically admits that he was nervous and he was, he knew he was following this incredible manager and he wanted to do it better, but he was frightened of it. And it's just that little moment where you think that's, that's why you couldn't do it. It's because you were, you've got this confident bluster, but you, 
you couldn't, you knew deep down that you were really frightened of following Don Revy. That's why I say I should have had somebody to bounce off, to advise him, but hey, Brian, you don't do that. You know, you don't fall out with a tea lady on your first day, you know, and uh, that's absolutely right, really. And it was such a contrast to Revy because, as I mentioned earlier, Revy knew everything and he knew everybody. He knew all about everybody at Ellen Road from the, the groundsman through to the tea ladies, you know. So here, all of a sudden, you've got this brash, cocky young manager coming in replacing a total god in Leeds United terms and just going about it the wrong way. Plus the fact results were poor. You know, that was the other thing. If he'd won every match, then people think, well, okay, you're going to give him time. But they weren't. They were playing rubbish. You know, there's no question about it. So but he, he, I seriously don't believe he, and I don't believe he would ever have been a great England manager, fully enough. I know that's not a popular theory, but he fell out with too many people and he didn't like the, the the top brass, he didn't like the, the suits, the blazers and those sort of people. He'd have caused ructions with England. He really would. He'd have fallen out with so many FA councillors. He was not a diplomat, you know, so he'd have been putting his foot in it too often. So, I'm, I'm, And yet I like the man. Don't get me wrong here, totally, uh, because I enjoyed interviewing him. I became, uh, when I left Radio Leeds, I became network football producer down in London for BBC. And I used to go away with Forrest and one of my jobs was constantly having to interview him. And I loved interviewing him because you knew you were going to be headline news because of what he'd say. And he did have qualities, as some of his players at Forest would say as well, just like I said about them all worshipping Revy at Leeds. So his players at Forest, they loved him as well. Uh, but he had longer to establish his, his way of doing things there. Uh, he had great humour, absolutely terrific humour, uh, put across sometimes in a funny way, but he would also have upset people, no question. Given how it worked out for Revy at England and Clough at Leeds, do you think they both maybe regretted moving jobs? Do you think Revy would have rather stayed? I think to a certain extent, yes. I mean, uh, financially, no, because, you know, you had a killing over there in the in the Middle East, no question about it, but it did tarnish his reputation. And then he found it hard when he tried to get a job back in England. This is why, in a way, he started to concentrate on coachings and schools and, and that sort of uh, entry into football, or that, that, that way to make a living in football. Clough, it's hard to say what he did regret because, uh, I mean, he went on to have a fantastic career, didn't he? Apart from Brighton and Hove Albion, which was a, a disaster. But apart from that, obviously, with, with Derby and with Forrest, I mean, he had an absolutely wonderful career and has left a, a fantastic legacy as well. It was just a shame that uh, illness you know, got the better of Cluffy and his image was perhaps tarnished right at the end or his reputation tarnished with the, with the club getting relegated. And it, it was a shame for, for that to happen for somebody with such a, a glittering record. How do you reflect on Leeds's transition towards using Revy's sons as managers? Was that a mistake? Um, yes. Possibly, uh, certainly in certain cases, not in Eddie Gray's case. Eddie's a good guy and a decent manager. Billy Bremner um, did reasonably well for a, a, quite a while, obviously. I don't think Alan Clark was up to the job particularly uh, in comparison with those two. A bit more of a loner, uh, Alan Clark. Um, and, uh, yeah, you see, Johnny Giles was the one who really should have taken on the dynasty. And then all of a sudden, Billy Bremner's name came forward. And uh, <laughs> that's what happened in Cluffy getting the job. And then Jimmy Arnfield being appointed soon after that, of course. You know, now, I think if Johnny Giles, who was a very intelligent guy, had been given that post, then I don't think a lot of things that happened. History would have been different, without question, because Johnny would have kept the continuity. He would have kept the feel in the dressing room and, and results would have uh, 
continued to be as good as, as they'd been under Revy, possibly. So I, th- I thought, yeah, it, it was a mistake in hindsight. Some of them, it doesn't always work, does it? A great player, we'll see with Lampard at Chelsea, whether a, a great son of the, of the club you know, can go on to be a great manager. Just into the 1980s, um, you moved from the BBC to ITV, into the wilderness years in many ways. <laughs> well, I had one season. The 1981-82 season um, was the last that Yorkshire Television covered football, the big match. Um, wasn't to do with me, I hasten to add. Uh, Paul Fox, the boss, suddenly looked at viewing figures which weren't great. And the fact that Leeds got relegated, that was Al- Alan Clark's regime, uh, decreed that um, there was no Premier League football <clears throat> or top division football, as it was at the time, and that... Um, we shouldn't continue apart from occasional matches which we shared with Granada. So maybe we did, I don't know, 10 or 12 matches the following season. And those were really dark years. Those were very, very dark years. Um, it's how I, I started then because I wasn't working every Saturday. I started writing for the Mail on Sunday, you know, but still carrying on at Yorkshire Television, working for them and doing matches whenever they did them. I think we still did the, was it the Rumbelows Cup in those days? Uh, still did midweek cup ties as well. So I, I, at least I was still involved as a commentator. I'd not lost out completely, but it was a big blow to me at the end of just one season. I'd just done the World Cup in Spain as well, which was probably my best World Cup. I loved Spain 82, fantastic. And I'd, I had all the Brazil matches with, with the greatest team I ever saw, you know, with Zico and Falco and Socrates, and it was just wonderful. And then to come back to the crushing news, well, hey, but we're not going to do any football on Yorkshire television. What? It uh, was, was a bit horrific, really. What do you think these days about the lack of sport on free-to-air TV? Do you think it's going to have long-term effects on participation and the way people consume the game? Because the, obviously you've seen the Women's World Cup has had viewing figures of nearly 12 million versus Sky get a couple of million for a, you know, a Super Sunday game. Um, and even things like golf and cricket have kind of ebbed away from the BBC as well over the years. I just wonder how you think that has changed over time and how you think it'll affect things in the future. It's highlighted, it's certainly. The two events so coming so quickly after one another, the Women's World Cup and then England's cricket victory, I mean, uh, was which was the most astonishing game of cricket ever. And that being uh, free-to-air has really put it back into perspective. I heard um, one of the Ashley Giles from the England Cricket Board saying that, yeah, but you've got to give Sky the credit without the money that they pumped in. It wouldn't have been possible to do this and that and the other, which is absolutely true. So it is a double-edged sword in many ways. But I am a firm believer that top-level sport should be on free-to-air television. That You know, the, the Open Golf Championship, Wimbledon, if you like, you know, the, the FA Cup final, they were treasured events and were protected for some some time. This is not knocking Sky, who've done a good job. Uh, they wrecked part of my life when they took over Rugby League and we had to finish doing Scrum Down at Yorkshire Television and it's never got back on terrestrial. So for some sports, I think it's absolutely vital for the young ones to you know, if they see something live on television and they're hooked by it, they will continue to to, you know, to to participate in that sport. Whereas if they haven't got Sky, they'll never ever go to see it. You know, so yeah, it is a double-edged sword. The Cricket World Cup final that you just mentioned there, have you run through in your head a, a fantasy commentary, a John Helm take on that moment? <laughs> I'll tell you what I did think. Uh, who on earth, you know knows all the rules. I mean, I didn't know. I'd never seen a, a supernova. My wife called it a supernova. She said, what's this supernova? I said, that's a car, I think, you know. Um, and I thought, my goodness me, that's not the sort of thing you would have prepared for as a commentator. You can prepare for all sorts. We all know there are new rules in football now at the wall and things like that. And the ball no longer has to go out of the penalty area. And I thought, 
God, I wouldn't have known the rules here. And as a commentator, that is the first thing you must, you must know, really. But on the other hand, you all, boy, would you have loved to have been doing the commentary on that? I mean, it's, it's a legacy forever. It's, it goes down forever as the commentary on something like that. I mean, there are moments like that for a few commentators. Uh, and you're just happy to, to be the one who is there and given the opportunity and you hope you get it right on the day. But that was phenomenal television. I mean, even my wife is gripped and she hates football and cricket. You know, she's had a clue about what's going on, but she was up and down off the sofa and every ball was different, wasn't it? One minute it was New Zealand, the next second it was England, then it was New Zealand again. It was just wonderful, wonderful. Speaking of the rule changes, what do you think of the new like handball rules and stuff like that and getting yourself acquainted with them? What's yeah. that like for you as a commentator? Well, what I do say is change the way we commentate because, you know, <laughs> but David, David Coleman, it's 1-0 and we can't say that anymore because it might not be, it might still be nil-nil. And the, the captions, we need, we've seen them on television now, where it goes one-nil and now to reverse it and put it back to nil-nil. And there's that seed of doubt now in your in your mind. So with the handball, I feel a bit for some of the defenders because they say it's got to be in an unnatural position or whatever. And if it, But the, the wording has changed slightly. So if it's now preventing a goal-scoring opportunity, they'll give the penalty. On the one hand, I'm delighted to see a few more goals being scored because as a commentator, you hate a nil-nil. You really do. Even one nil is a bit disappointing. Um, so you, if you are going to get more penalties, you're going to get more three twos and two two, whatever. Um, but I do feel, I think it's tough on some of the defenders. You've got to have leverage and you sometimes, where else do you put your arms? And the ball hits it from a fella striking it from two yards away. Um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a tough one. And VAR, it's, it's here to stay, no question about it, but it, it's changing a lot of things. Do you think there's too much importance on football now? Should it be more fun? Because it feels a bit like to me like VAR's come in because it's now, there's now so much money involved and there's so much pressure on it that there's this need to get everything right. Whereas maybe in the past, it was more of a, not to say amateurish, but it was more of an acceptance that it was just a sport and it was fun. Yeah. And is VAR, is, is this all part of kind of robbing the enjoyment of sport, which is what it's there for in the end? At the end well, of the day? we all grew up playing sport because we loved it and it was fun, wasn't it? Whether it was cricket, football, golf, whatever your sport was, we played it for fun. And I was talking about this the other day. I played in a celebrity golf day with a lot of old footballs, including Lee Sharp, uh, Leeds United, Mark Crossley, the goalkeeper, Dean Saunders, all lads who love a bit of crack. And we were referring to this, that they were still humour in the dressing room when they were players. They were basically playing the game for fun. Yes, they were getting pretty well paid. But now, I also go to football reunions where you get players from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s all turning up and having a real good laugh about the larking they got up to in the dressing room, all the things that went on. I can't imagine Paul Pogba coming back to a Manchester City reunion or Sanchez coming back to... They won't do after-dinner speaking. I mean, Mark Crossley still does some after-dinner. Dean Saunders still does. And they're funny. They can get up and tell funny stories, which we all appreciate, you know. might be about Gazza. It might be about Cluffy. Uh, but none of those players who are millionaires go mad, aren't they? You know, why would they ever want to do an after-dinner speech? It just won't happen. So it, it, it's changed the image of the game, the sport, completely. It's, it's a multi-millionaire's pastime almost now, isn't it? They play when they want, you know. Well, do some of them. Do you sense any resentment from the, the sort of Riviera players when they see the likes of I don't know, Lewis Baker arriving on loan from Chelsea? who's never never played a game, but he's in his Range Rover sport and he's you know probably a millionaire at the age of twenty two, having never really played any football. Is that is this? Or do they not really care? About I, I think there's a secret envy. Almost. It's one that they don't want to be seen to be making. One or two would say yeah, a little bit, you know, we used to get 
£3.20 uh, or something. Um, so there's bound to be a little bit of resentment. They're just that you're born in the wrong time. But I think most of them accept that these things go in ages, don't they? And it, who knows, in another 20 years' time, the club game might be bankrupt and they might have been better off in the era that they lived in. You, you, you can't really compare eras, I don't think. Everything's changed, hasn't it? Beyond, beyond recognition. Have you found it different dealing with footballers in the modern era? Oh, God. Do you ever deal with footballers in the modern era? Not at the top level. I used to have the phone numbers of every Legion, not just Leeds, every Leeds, Louisville, Tottenham, Man City. I had the numbers of the lot, especially as a network football producer. I don't have the number of one footballer now, not one current footballer. And what happens, you go to a World Cup, you go to European Championships, you go to a Premier League game, one player is wheeled out for interview and they usually come from behind a backdrop somewhere, you know, sit behind a table alongside the manager so they're terrified to say anything anyway and every newspaper gets the same interview. There are no scoops as we used to call them anymore because if you pick up the Daily Mail and then you get the Daily Express and then you get the Daily Mirror, they all carry the same player interview because only that one player has been made available, which is why I'll give Gareth Southgate his due here. Before the World Cup last year in Russia, they wheeled out every England player down at St George's Park uh, on the condition that every player was interviewed, even, you know, was it Nicky Pope or somebody? They had to be interviewed. Uh, and I thought that was good. Uh, and it set people up throughout the World Cup. And they were very good during the World Cup. I did a couple of England games and they usually brought Harry Kane. Um, but at least you felt as though you, you were being considered. But the norm now is you never get to never get to know a player at all. They won't be, I say, they won't be doing after dinner speaking or playing in golf days in years to come, I don't think. So you're talking about your phone book there. No current players, but who's the most famous person in your phone book? Uh, probably Muhammad Ali, uh, but sadly he's no longer with us. Um, Nelson Mandela, I've interviewed him. And uh, I've interviewed the Beatles, I've interviewed the Stones, uh, going a long way back to before I became a footballing journalist. Footballing-wise, um, dare I mention Seth Blatter or something like that, because I do a lot of work with FIFA. So, yeah, they're, they're probably the most fun. I haven't got Beckham's. I'm, I've never had David Beckham's number. So, uh, yeah, that, that's not bad, though, is it? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Returning to the 1980s then, the Nadir for many, particularly in Yorkshire, is going to be the Bradford Fire, which uh, famously you commentated on. Is it right that you won't use the word tragedy in relation to football and events now when you're doing commentary because of that? Absolutely right. Um, never use it. it no, no penalty decision. No own goal is a tragedy. Uh, it's it's a misfortune, uh, an act of misfortune. I mean, I find different words to that to, to describe it. But no, I've never used the word tragedy since because that was real human tragedy. And this is me. I know this is just a personal foible, but I hate it when people say he's on fire. A goal scorer. I hate it when they say he's on fire. No, he's not on fire at all. I've seen people on fire. It's nothing like that at all. He's in great form, or he's terrific, or you know, he's uh, having a having a fantastic run, or he's not on fire. Uh, but that's just personal. I understand. It's one of those common phrases that has crept in, and but whenever I hear it, I go because you managed to stay professional. I mean, the, the footage that is available to view, uh, it, it's harrowing. Um, and you managed to stay in commentary mode because it was almost a strange segue from there's a game going on to a bit of something on the far side of the pitch to suddenly the whole stand's burning down and there are there are people on fire in front of you. And how did you manage to stay focused on that? Um, I like to think professionalism, the fact that I've been in the business a long time, I and mean, we're talking now 1985, and I started working in 1959, so what's that, 26 years? With a good grounding in weekly newspaper, daily newspaper, radio nationally and locally and television. Uh, so the, the journalistic side of it, I think, came automatically to me. I had a director who was calm as well, so he was speaking into my ears and saying, just keep going, John, just keep talking. But I thought, well, I don't want to talk every second of it because the pictures were so dramatic, so graphic, that a lot of them didn't need words. You know, I, I know when the, the poor chap came out with his hair on fire, I, I said something like the poor chap. Or, it was just human reaction, and I think you you do react automatically. Uh, it, it's just your instinct and your way of putting things across. And I, I knew I had to keep focused. I had to keep talking. I didn't want to over-dramatise because at that stage, I had no idea there were 56 people losing their lives. I could see that it was a harrowing experience and that a lot of people were in grave danger, but I had no idea about the people at the back of that stand, no idea. Uh, and the first inkling I got was two little lads crawled up to me. I was on a, <clears throat> in like a garden shed almost on the opposite side to the main stand, built upon that little hillside behind what was, the, what was then a low stand, and two... Kids came crawling up and said, there's two dead down there, mister. And that sent an, it still sends a shudder through me to this minute, to this day. And um, that was my first realisation of the gravity of, of, of the situation. And then I had to, once I'd been told I could stop talking, which was all I was grateful for, actually, for two reasons. One, I, I felt I'd said enough and would, uh, not running out of things to say, but new and meaningful things to say. But also I was being pelted by some supporters with stones throwing stones at me saying shout 
shouting out, switch your cameras off, you know, which is a good job we didn't because those pictures are still used for training purposes from all the emergency services. So it was a good job we didn't. It had to be done. Uh, and then I went down onto the pitch to interview people. And that's when I first really realised just how serious it was. Can you take us back to the start of that day? How did your day unfold uh, before you got to the ground? Very normally, beautiful day, really beautiful day. And we had a tradition at Yorkshire Television to go and have lunch somewhere locally before the game. And we were in the Victoria Hotel in Bradford having, and I can remember it was a carvery and it was lovely. I had some nice lamb and a bit of pork, a bit of beef or whatever, and roast potatoes. Oh, this is great. And there was no pressure on the match whatsoever because we were only doing it because Bradford were being awarded the trophy for winning the league. Uh, Lincoln were in a safe position as well. So it was one of those very few matches where nothing rested on the result. It was just a carnival day. Uh, as I say, the weather was gorgeous and uh, my role was really just to reflect Bradford's day of triumph, the presentation of the trophy to Peter Jackson, who was the captain at the time, talk about the heroes of, of that era, you know, the Stuart McCalls and people like that, cover the game. Pff, nice, easy Saturday afternoon. Pff, wow. So that moment when you went down onto the pitch and started um, interviewing people, um, what was that like? Can you take us back to that moment? Yes, I mean, I knew a lot of the people. The, the detective inspector in charge was Terry Slocum, who I'd um, known for years, uh, in my days working as a journalist in Shipley. So he told me uh, about the number of people who were being taken to Bradford Royal Infirmary, which sent a bit of a shiver up my spine to start with, because I don't think I'd quite realised how bad it was. Then I interviewed the Lord Mayor, uh, Alder Mayor Gar Robinson, who I knew through cricket because he was Mr. Great Horton. He played for Great Horton and was the, he ran that cricket club for years and I'd been involved in bail, didn't make my debut at Great Horton, funnily enough. Um, and then Peter Jackson came up and he'd still got his claret and amber shirt on, but a duffel coat wrapped around him. And uh, he couldn't find his wife, Alison, who I also knew. Yeah, Stuart McCall couldn't find his father. And there were these two people who had been commentating on kicking a football 15, 20 minutes earlier, searching for loved ones. And it, it, was, it was just uh, in such stark contrast to the happiness of the afternoon that all of a sudden you descended in, into gloom, into horror mode. And um, again, not realising still the international meaning of this. It was I hadn't known, but they'd been pumping my pictures out live on ITV. Um, they got that through from Leeds into, into London and it's become the biggest international story of the weekend. I couldn't be expected to know that, but I was just concentrating on trying to find people uh, on the pitch who I knew, who I could talk to. And uh, well, it was a day I'll just never forget. My wife had no idea she was aware to conference that day, didn't find out until evening. So um, yeah, absolutely harrowing. So after that final interview on the pitch, then what did you do? Went back to Yorkshire Television Studios and uh, we were organising an hour-long special that evening. So I was contacting people to come in like Graham Kelly, Secretary of the Football League, Stafford Heginbotham, the Chairman of Bradford City, uh, people from the emergency services. And uh, so I didn't finish work until nearly midnight. Came home, wanted to retire, to be honest with you, almost. Um, and I, the, the one thing I couldn't believe was they came to me and said, you know, we're doing the World Pair Speedway at Odsall tomorrow. I went, what? And said, yeah, the programme still goes ahead. I said, I'm not doing it. And they said, you've got to do it. There's nobody else to present it. So I had a quick decision to make. And I said, well, I don't really want to do it, but I'll agree on one condition. And that is we start the programme 
in black almost, you know, and we have to relate to what has gone on at Valley Parade. And we do not smile throughout the entire Speedway program, even though it's a totally different sport, nothing to do with them. So professionally had to do that program, but we were respectful to the events of the previous Valley Parade. And how do you reflect on Leeds going to Oddsall season after and the chip van? Uh, yeah, terrible. I mean, it's just, I'm mean, sadly, I mean, it happens in football, doesn't it? Where it doesn't seem to happen in other sports, particularly. And uh, I'm afraid there will always be a few mindless idiots probably attached to the sport. You know, I was at a game the other night where there were people driving me mad, you know, with some of the songs they were singing and chanting. And uh, I'm a pretty quiet chap, me, really. So when I hear things that I don't like, the hackles rise a little bit. So what the Leeds fans did at Odsall that day, I was uh, I was there and um, unforgivable, really. I wonder if they reflect now and realise what they were doing. And every now and again, you do hear, like we have Tottenham with the, the Jewish support, don't we? You know, the, the songs that are chanted down there. And I think it, it's um, it's a sign of a poor upbringing or whatever whatever you want to class it as. It, there's no no place for it, no need for it, and you just wish that those sort of things would disappear. Sadly, they probably won't. Yeah, I was there too, and I'm from Bradford and a Leeds fan, and I was next to the chip van, and we scrambled under a, a fence to get away. And I was only young at the time, but reflecting on that now, as I've got older and more aware of everything, it's something I've always struggled with as a Leeds fan because it affected so many people in Bradford. Yes, I think that's fair. And I, I must add, by the way, that when I referred to those people who were stoning me, I got a few letters from them apologising, saying we hadn't realised we were just caught up in the moment and they just got carried away. And they saw somebody else throwing a stone, so they threw a stone. You know, okay, but I did at least get a form of apology from quite a few of them. And I, I understand that people do get, get caught up and uh, get a, a little bit too... I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm um, phlegmatic. I banged my car the other day. It cost me over 1,200 quid, but I'm still late. It happened. What do you do about it? You get on with it, don't you? There's no turning the clock back. How's the Bradford fire affected you on a personal level? Is it right that you didn't have counselling? I didn't. And yet my wife was working for Samaritans at the time, which is ridiculous when you think about it. That's where she was on the day. She was down in Derbyshire at a Samaritans conference. I didn't have counselling. And the uh, the incident I will never, ever forget, I, as I say, I did the programme on the Sunday at the Speedway at Otsal. On the Monday, and I understand this, they wanted me in on calendar to talk about the events of the weekend, which is absolutely fine. And then I said... I definitely need a holiday. I, I, I've got to get away. I can't, you know, just, I can't just carry on after a thing like that. So I booked a holiday. And um, the only place we could get to was, I think it was Tunisia, um, quick, short notice. So we flew to Tunisia and we're waiting with my wife. We're waiting for the luggage to come off the carousel. And this woman came up alongside me and started imitating my commentary. <sighs> there appears to be a small fire in the stand. <gasps> Wow, if ever a man could have been excused for hitting a woman, it would have been at that moment. Um, and that was a moment where I knew I needed counselling because it had got to me. I sound phlegmatic normally. And I really, I was really, you know, pumped up at that moment. I, I could have, I didn't even speak. I just walked away. I, I thought, I'm going to have to just walk away. And I probably should have had some counselling because I reckon it took me six months to be back to something like my normal scent. And I've never forgotten it, never, ever. I mean, I go down to the commemorative service sometimes in Bradford. I've read out the names of the dead and things like that. And I won't say every time I go to Valley Parade, I get a feel. I don't know. But if I 
to look at all the names and it, it, it lives with you forever. You're never going to lose that. And rightly so. You know, it was a momentous day for all the wrong reasons, but it's something that's uh, in happened in your life that isn't, you can't turn the clock back. It's happened and uh, it, it's right that I should feel that way about it. And a dark day for Leeds as well with the death of Ian Hambridge on the same day at Birmingham. Absolutely. And that got overlooked so much, didn't it? You know, it was one person as opposed to 56. Was it a hard time to work in football at that time? Because we were talking about how difficult it is now for kids to get into football because it's all on Sky. And it's the same. I was growing up in Leeds in the 1980s and I wasn't a football fan. Nobody I knew was a football fan because it wasn't on TV. And then when it was on TV, it would either be Heysel, it would be the Bradford Fire, it would be Hills. But those were the big games. It felt like for my parents who weren't into football, every time there was a big match on that maybe, oh, your six, seven-year-old would watch, it turned into um, a human disaster. And you and and from your point of view, as a, you touched on it there, you're a football commentator and the guys commentating on Heysel and Hillsborough were football commentators. And yet suddenly, who would you, in any other circumstances, send to cover an event where dozens of people are, are dying? You probably wouldn't pick, first of all, well, we'll get the, the local football reporter. But that became your jobs in the 1980s. It's a very valid point because football became very uh, unpopular, if, if that's the right word, um, not the right thing to be involved in. And you almost hesitated to say you were a football commentator. It wasn't anything down to you or the way you did your job, but it, sport had such an awful reputation because of Heisel, because of Bradford. And there were other incidents as well happening around the world. So it suddenly became uh, not the in thing to be involved in the sport, you know. Yeah, you could be involved in golf or tennis or whatever, football. No, you'd, you'd, and the viewing figures weren't there. And um, I say Yorkshire Television weren't doing football anymore. Um, and there were dark years, you know. Uh, poor old Everton suffered. They couldn't go and play even though they won the league. They couldn't go and play because it wasn't Champions League. They couldn't play in the European Cup. And um, there were a lot of sad stories. Uh, there, there was the, the still going on about uh, Hillsborough, isn't it? You know, and the Sun newspaper got banned by Liverpool because of the comments that they'd made. And oh dear, it, it was a bad time to, to be in journalism, in footballing journalism at that time. It, it's surprising actually that some of the other sports didn't outstrip it in popularity. I mean, football is still the number one world seller, isn't it? Um, but it, it, yeah, it definitely was not the, the in thing to be in football. Do you think the World Cup in 1990 was a bit of a switch? Because that was quite joyous. It wasn't a great tournament, but it was quite a joyous occasion, particularly. And I'm thinking of your own experience with like the Cameroonians. Yes, Roger Miller. Uh, yeah, it was an uplifting one for England, especially as well, you know, doing as well as we did in that World Cup. So it was probably a bit of, a little bit of a catalyst. Not the complete one, I don't think. I think it, it took a while after that. Maybe the, we have to say, much as I'm, I hesitate, is the Premier League, the advent of the Premier League, it suddenly became massive, didn't it? And players are arriving from all over the world. You know, so when we got Ozzy Ardilis and uh, Ricky Villa coming from Argentina to Tottenham, it was a big deal. But then all of a sudden, when you got into uh, where we are nowadays, you know, and you've got every summer, every transfer is a foreign player coming into England and some big names came obviously and they've transformed the image as well I mean um, sometimes to the detriment of our own players but as far as the wider public are concerned and the television coverage which is now absolutely wall to wall that we've said globally I mean you can't go anywhere in the world without watching the Premier League uh, it, it's transformed the sport again and now it it is popular to be involved in football again, not with all the wives, but I mean, it, 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 is, it is popular, isn't it? Ten World Cups, is it then? 
10 you've covered? I've done 10. Yeah, maybe I'll get to 11 with Qatar. I'm still a fit lad. Uh, I've done 10 World Cups. I've done four Olympics, four Commonwealth Games, few Asian Games, uh, 20 Open Golf Championships. So there's been a bit of variety as well, but 10 World Cups, yeah. I'm quite proud of that, actually. There aren't many of us who've managed to do 10. And you got a personalised celebration from the Cameroonians, is that right? Oh, that was funny. Uh, what had happened there, purely by accident, by the way, I was up in, I went to a place called Varese, uh, where the Cameroon team were based and ITV, I was reporting as well as commentating there. And uh, I was doing, I wasn't commentating on the opening game with the Cameroon and Argentina, but I was sent up to Varese to their headquarters. And when I arrived, the press conference had been the day before. Uh, ITV had got it wrong. So I said, look, I've come all this way from Milan. Surely you're going to let me in. And they went, well, okay, on this occasion. So I went in, I got a little bit with Roger Miller walking around in the grounds. And then the really funny one, the, there was a goalkeeper called uh, Joseph Antoine Bell. It was the second choice goalkeeper, really. Well, the interview, oh, and I got Makanaki, who was it, got him playing the piano and singing, which was absolutely brilliant. And then this Joseph Antoine Bell said, by the way, we've no chance. He said, we're hopeless. The, because of the coach, he was a Russian coach. He said, he's useless. He said, if we even score a goal, I'll run the length of the pitch waving to you. Well, of course, Cameroon scored. Uh, Biek scored the goal. And jo Joseph Bell got up from the bench and ran the pitch, waving to me all the way along the touchline. And all the comments said, what the hell's he doing? <laughs> so I was very proud of that moment, yeah. What's the roughest place you've been to then around the world uh, where you've kind of gone, oof, this is a little bit well, sketchy? I, I could have given you only, well, no, I could give you three contenders. Um, the first two were, one was Romania, which was with Nottingham Forest, a place called Pitesti, where all the lights went out at five o'clock uh, and you couldn't get a drink. It was, uh, and you can imagine what mood Cluffy was in. That's the one where I won't do the whole story, but at his press conference before the game, he actually asked, he got all the players lined up and went down the line of them, got to Larry Lloyd. Hey, Lawrence, I can't think why you call yourself Larry when you've got a nice name like Lawrence. Uh, number five, matches your IQ. Who won two caps for England on the same day? And Lloyd says, that's impossible. So it's not it's you and you, you and your bloody last. So that was Lloyd. So Pitesti was horrible. But then I went to Nigeria a few years ago. So apologies to anybody from Nigeria or Lego who might be listening. Oh, there were crocodiles on the golf course and, you know, it really was a, a, not nice. We had a riot in the stadium where a local councillor, a politician up for election had promised 2,000 people he'd get them into the match, uh, provided they voted for him. And they came in after about five. The crowd at kickoff time was like 500. And uh, five minutes later, it was 5,500. And there were riots and there was tear gas and there was horses on the pitch and everything else. But then last year, I've topped the lot because I had to flee Nicaragua. Uh, I was sent out there to do the CONCACAF women's under-17 qualifiers for the World Cup. And uh, you do two matches a day, and that's not easy, believe you and me. Haiti under-17 women versus Curaçao under-17 <laughs> women are not household names. And on the way back to the hotel, I suddenly aware that there was nobody about. There was nobody in the street. There was nobody walking. And this is 8 o'clock on a Saturday night. No restaurants open, nothing. Uh, hotel padlocked and uh, eventually a man guard came out and he said, come in. Once we showed him a key card, he will not be going out. There are 36 dead out there in the street. And um, I got into the room. FIFA had sent a message saying, we can't guarantee your safety. Tournament's cancelled. We'll get you out when we can. 
I had to stay there with all the referees for a day, which wasn't too bad, to be honest. The food was still okay in the hotel. There was a nice pool. And then at four o'clock in the morning, now, and they got got us all out at four in the morning and flew us out of the country via Houston, I think it was. So, uh, that, And there were 70 dead by then, right outside the hotel. Crikey. So these um, these obscure tournaments, when you don't know the players, how do you prepare commentary-wise for something like that? They're very, very difficult. I mean, yes, a World Cup is wonderful because you know every player, basically. All right, not every, you know, there might be some from El Salvador or somewhere that you've got to work a bit harder on. But when you do something like the women's under-70s, there's nothing even on Wikipedia. You know? So you, what I do, I go to the team hotel, and they're often housed in the same hotel. That's good. I've just been in Poland where all four teams at any one time were in the same hotel. So I usually get hold of it and get the manager. I get the manager, but there's usually an assistant manager or a physio or somebody like that. So I managed to befriend. First thing is get the pronunciations right, you know, because that is what we're there to do. You know, commentators, you owe it to the players to get the pronunciation correct. And then I try to find out where they've been training, how long it's taken them to get there, what's the likely starting lineup, who are the star players to look out for. And you, I, I take five or six hours on every single match that I commentate on preparing. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and people don't always appreciate it. And I've just said it, the pronunciation is a key thing. I mean, if you look at a name, right, Poland had a goalkeeper spelt M-L-Y-N-C-Z-A-R-E-K. Looks like Mlinkzrek, pronounced Muinarczyk. And once you've got it, you're okay. It's like I did a game in Thailand. The number four was Sanaisiria Jatarapaturapong. So we didn't get much of the ball. Uh, but you've, unless you prepare, you're going to let somebody down, yourself included. And is that because you're seen as the voice of authority? You're seen as the as the voice of knowledge, the person who you, people believe that whatever you're saying on that television is correct, which is why I said I'm glad in a way I wasn't doing the cricket the other night. I wouldn't have had a clue what the rules were on that super over or supernova, as my wife called it. Uh, no, you are the voice of authority. Yes, of course you are, but you are the voice that is imparting the, the knowledge you've got, and hopefully that knowledge is accurate, which is what we all do it for. We, we do it we do it because we've got a passion for the sport, but that passion has got to be laced with knowledge. Is that what makes a great commentator? What makes a great commentator in your, in your book? I think uh, clarity, being yourself, uh, knowledge, certainly. But I always say to young ones, uh, when they ask for advice, I say, just be yourself. Let your own personality come through. You know, Peter Alice is very different to, say, you and Murray as a golf commentator, both excellent commentators in their own right. John Watson was totally different to Barry Davis, great commentators in their own right. So I think uh, I always say, just be yourself, but, yeah, but never, ever stop working. The day you stop working at the preparation is the day to pack in because you're letting yourself down and you're letting everybody else down. Take us to World Cup 1994, hanging out with Jack Charlson. <laughs> Are you bringing him on to wife's story again here? Uh, well, hanging out with him for a start was funny. I love Jack. I love Big Jack. He's a great man. And uh, I gave him his first job in the media because I was at Radio Leeds at the time. And he came to me with the idea. He was still playing for Leeds United. So he came to me with the idea, this had been in about 1973, of doing a programme called Jack's Track. And uh, it involved no football whatsoever, apart from he interviewed Shankly and I think he interviewed Bobby. And he interviewed, he interviewed journalists, which was good. But he also went out poaching one night. He went to a glass blowing factory. He went to an abattoir and he was just a brilliant communicator. 
great knowledge, Jan, brilliant man, puts it across really well. But in 94, um, he, of course, was the manager of Ireland, but became, when Ireland got knocked out, he became one of our commentary team as well. And I'll never forget going with him and Matt Lorenzo to, um, we were in Dallas and we had a day out where we went to Fort Worth and Big Jack's hero was John Wayne, who made a lot of his movies down in that part of the world. And we we hired a car, Matt Lorenzo, the presenter from ITV, Big Jack and myself, and we're driving down the road, not a clue where we were going. And Big Jack jumps out of the car and found a local yokel sucking a straw sort of thing. And he says, where are we going? And I looked at him, how do you mean, where are we going? And he says, is this where the gunfight at the OK Canal took place? <laughs> uh, and we had a most wonderful time there, wonderful day. And then, yeah, I think, um, well, I... Dare I tell the story? Yes, I dare tell the story. She's told it to you anyway. So my wife does embarrass me occasionally because she's got the weirdest sense of humour at times. But um, she approached Big Jack in the hotel. I thought, what's she doing here? She'd come out for a holiday at the end of the tournament. And she said, Jack, have you got any Ireland shirts? Oh, no, what's she doing? Like, you never, ever ask for things like that, a signed shirt or whatever. He said, well, not now. If you'd have asked me earlier, maybe. She said, no, it's just it's the only way I can keep John interested at night is to wear a different <laughs> shirt in bed. Oh, at least Jack saw the funny side of it. <laughs> Any other favourite memories from World Cups? Yes, uh, I suppose one would be, I mentioned the Brazilian team. And in 1982, I did Brazil versus New Zealand in Seville, uh, which Brazil won 4-0. I mean, they were just fantastic. But I suddenly got a message at halftime to leave the commentary box because we got Pele for interview. And uh, I had to shoot down to the interview area to interview Pelly, which is not a bad person. It's a good excuse to go, isn't it? Yeah. And as I rushed into the room, I just caught my knee on a glass table. And uh, I managed to then just start the interview. And suddenly this glass table crashed into a thousand pieces behind us. And Pelly went, oh, my God. Oh, and my leg was bleeding. He said, how's your leg? And I said, not as valuable as yours. And that's how the interview started. <laughs> so that was just one incident from from that one. I've got memories of every World Cup. I mean, they're all different, absolutely different. But, uh, yeah, Spain was my favourite. Um, I didn't do 98 in France, not selected, uh, because we'd taken on Peter Drury, lovely guy, uh, just joined ITV. And so I ended up doing golf uh, in France that year rather than doing the World Cup. And then memories of uh, the 2002 final, um, did nearly every match off a monitor in Seoul in the studio rather than being in the stadium. I did get to about four. I did the opening match, but then it was decided I could go to Yokohama, but I got to get my find my own way to Yokohama from Korea. So trains and boats and planes and everything, and I got there about three hours before kickoff and did the match, and then I had to go all the way back again to Seoul. So people don't realise what, what you do go through. Germany... I did the most matches I've ever done. I did 26 matches at the, that World Cup, which is not bad out of 64, is it? You know, it's a good proportion, but travel everywhere by train. Now, this, you'll love this one. I was doing a game in Kaiserslautern, Australia, Japan, seat booked, and I love the train system in Germany. I don't know if you've been, but I have, yeah, it's you great. know exactly where <laughs> to stand on the platform because it, it says where your carriage is going to pull up and you just literally step into the train at, at the given point. I couldn't get on because of inflatable kangaroos. There were thousands of inflatable kangaroos, the mad Aussies. Couldn't get on, even though I'd got a ticket booked for the thing. I had to wait for another train by which, you know, they'd all got ahead of me. <laughs> 
And your uh, your words are featured on a Danish T-shirt. Is that right? Apparently so. Yes, uh, um, Michael Laudrup. Uh, that was uh, that was Mexico, the World Cup. There, uh, one of the best collective and individual performances I've ever seen. Uh, Denmark beat Uruguay 6-1 in a place called Netzerhualcoyotl, shortened to Netzer. And Michael Laudrup scored this goal. And I like to think I'm, I'm pleased with the commentary. All I said was, easy, the boy's a genius. That's all I said, the boy's a genius. He, he scored, the, it was 6-1 at the end. And apparently it's on Danish T-shirts, is that the boy's a genius, yeah. Is that strange thinking that your words have kind of passed into yeah, his, it history like that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like you know, with the one with Leeds United, how people always remember, you know, the Strachan commentary for what, for whatever reason. It's like Barry Davis; they always remembered. Just look at his face when somebody had scored. Now, I've always said the fewer words you use, the better. The more impact it has. If you if you use three or four words, you don't need to use 30, 40 words. Which again is advice I give to these young commentators: you don't need to spout forever and keep talking because it can be. Monosyllabic can become boring. But if you say the boy's a genius, so I'll just look at his face. People remember that. And Wilkinson's leads, we'll get onto the track and goal in a second. Your your big moment for us anyway. Um you must have known Howard from around Yorkshire circles then prior to him coming to Leeds. What was he like? Yes, well, I did. I knew him from his Sheffield Wednesday days. I knew him even before that, funnily enough, uh, through PFA or something. Anyway, uh Howard was doer. He's doer, he's Howard, he, you know, he's monosyllabic and the way he talks, but he's entertaining at the same time. And uh, he was he's a funny one, is Howard, because he would say to you, oh, I haven't got time to do long, two, a couple of minutes, I'll give you a couple of minutes. And an hour later, you'd still be talking. Um, so uh, I liked Howard, still like Howard. He's got a wacky sense of humour in many ways, but always very cooperative. Uh, he was, uh, when I say about the humour, it, it was quite funny that um, he, he used to love wearing a pocket handkerchief, which was very unusual in, in footballing terms. And one day the whole team turned up with pocket handkerchiefs in the dressing room and he's looking round them all. And he, he didn't like that. They were taking the, you know, what out of him. Um, but always very cooperative. Uh, could be tetchy. He had his odd tetchy moment, but a very good motivator. And again, just like Don Revy, uh, most of those players, that he played for, you know, the Mel Sterlins and the Glyn Snoddins and John Pearsons and God Strackens and McAllisters all really rated him very highly as a manager. Hey, he won, he won the championship. He did all right, didn't he? Yeah. Do you think he did the right thing in taking down the Riviera pitches and making a start again? No. Uh, personally, no. Funny, if it's just happened at my club, they've taken down a few of the honours boards there. Why do you do that? These are legends of the club that people ought to look up to and should be remembered. Uh, these are not times to forget. They're times to remember. You cherish the great memories. You know, for me, talking about John Charles today, talking about McAllister and Strachan, they're all part of the tapestry of the great football club that Leeds United is. So I thought Howard was very misguided on, on that one. Do you not think, though, that Leeds United's history has weighed us down as a club to an extent? No, I don't really. I don't think I'll go along with that. I mean, yes, the expectation level is there. You know, we just wish we could get through this blooming playoff business and learn how to play in playoffs. But, you know, every era is different and uh, they should have gone up last year without question. With that tally of points, you know, that should have been enough in, in any normal season. So I don't think history should weigh players down. I think they should be inspired by it. And I think it says a lot about the fabric of those players if they're not inspired and if they are a bit overawed. And what did Howard do for Leeds United? 
won the league. Well, he got them promoted. He brought organisation back into a club that had sort of lost its way. Uh, took him a while to do it, but he brought structure and he brought in good players. He really did bring in some very good players. When you think about Strachan, when you think about McAllister, two of the best Scottish players, let alone Leeds United players and... With, no, they went on to yeah, play for Man U and Liverpool and top clubs. Not just them. I mean, he, he could spot a player like Lee Chapman who would score you 20 goals without being pretty. Does that matter? No, it doesn't matter. You know, Mel Sterland, his best years were probably rampaging Zico down that right touchline. You know, he got, and he got the best. He got best out of people like Chris White and Chris Fairclough. Not exactly household names, but boy, did they contribute to that lead side. Maybe the only... Not a mistake, but was was Cantona, you know, got what, 10, 10 games or something out of Cantona. He, he fell out with him big style, I think, which was a shame in many ways because the fellow was a genius, wasn't he? How much involvement did you have across the 89-90 season then, which culminated in that strike and goal? Yeah, a lot. Um, I uh, Yorkshire were back on side by then a little bit, Yorkshire television back on side a bit. So I covered a lot of games and uh, yeah, I can remember that goal. So it was yesterday. And of course, uh, it, it, it's had a massive impact, you know, as did Bournemouth, you know, the, the one down at Bournemouth, the, the Lee Chapman, which Chris Kamara always says was, he reminds everybody he was the one who laid it on for Lee Chapman. Uh, and that was another big game to do. I remember going down to Brighton as well, to the two-all draw. So I was heavily involved, you know, and did a lot of the games. And I was also at that time working for another company doing the overseas uh, commentaries. So I did a lot, lot of the matches um, for overseas broadcast uh, from Ellen Road. So I did some great games there as well. You know, Tony DiRigo scoring and people like that. And the John Boyd moment as well. It's John Boyd, who, uh, the go on Gary Speed, get one yourself some, wasn't it? Do you, oh, wish, yeah. do you wish you delivered that line? Yeah, possibly. <laughs> that, but there's no, you, you're never envious of another commentator. Apart from being at a certain event, you oh, wish I was doing that one, uh, which is not the women's under 17 CONCACAF, by the way, uh, or pro celebrity mixed beach volleyball at Bridlington, which <laughs> I once had to do. Uh, but yeah, the John Did Boyd. Did you do three moment. hours of prep for that? <laughs> you, do more, you do more prep for those things. I did uh, last year, I did synchronized swimming in Glasgow by Jove do you need to prep for something you do seriously if it's, if it's a sport you're not comfortable with uh, if you're in your comfort zone it, it flows it, it, it really does flow hopefully and I'm comfortable with football cricket rugby golf but synchronised swimming my goodness me but what an experience I enjoyed it though and could you give us a lesson on synchronised swimming now if we asked? Oh, prob- probably. We're, yes. we're not going to do don't worry, no, it's fine. No, no. <laughs> so with the 89-90 season then, that moment, the Strachan moment, the Strachan goal against Leicester, can you talk us through that moment? Well, I remember, you know, it seemed as though the chance had gone almost. You know, the ball had been wide and then it got pulled back in. Uh, and it was just the way he hit it. The, the, the second it left his boot end, you just knew it was on its way in, you know, which is why I think I said, you know, have you ever seen a better goal? Have you ever seen one better timed? I mean, that was the perfect time to score it, wasn't it? Gary McAllister had ironically scored for Leicester City, uh, but Leeds deserved to win. And it was, uh, I think you, you knew instinctively it was a key moment in the history of the football club and couldn't have been scored by a, a more appropriate player. I had the chance, I interviewed Gordon Strachan a couple of years ago and asked him about that goal and he said, he can still feel it in his left foot. He can feel the moment that it left his boot. And that's something, and he kind of, he, he wouldn't expand on that, but you could tell he was deadly serious. It's like, I, I remember that, that feeling, that moment, probably more than Bournemouth in some ways. 
I suppose because he wasn't the one heading it in the in the net. But just to hear somebody saying that it, it sort of meant as much to a player as it did to everybody else, and and you can remember it's you can put it all together now. Fans can remember watching it. Strachan can remember the feeling in, in its foot. You remember the microphone in your hand and saying those words. Yeah. Put it all together. It's wonderful to hear those perspectives on it. Yeah, it's not, it's lovely as well that here we are all these years on still talking about it. And I suppose every club will have a moment in its history, which is a defining moment. And it's just joyful to be a part of that moment, you know, and all those players are never going to forget that day and the celebrations of that goal, just like the England cricketers will never forget the moment that they won the World Cup for the first time in, in history, you know. So when you look back on these moments, it's easier, there's more clarity about certain moments than others. I bet Strachan can't remember half the other goals he scored and he scored plenty, didn't he? He'd forgotten, uh, he'd forgotten the League Cup semi-final the season after. I was asking him about that and he was like, "We did we? Yeah. We played Man United. You like it was huge. That like, so that completely gone from his mind. But I think that's sometimes where a, a commentary can help because those words have definitely pinned that goal into history in a way that other matches there's, there's not that moment. So it's it gets tied together by the right words at the right time for the right goal. I bet you couldn't remember the League Cup final defeat by Aston Villa either. I mean, there are certain matches you want to forget, aren't there? We we rewatched that actually the other week. As oh, a, as sorry about that. To do one of the for one of the podcasts, and it was it was as bad as we remembered. Andy Gray was the best player that day, which is amazing in itself. It's like Ronnie Radford for Hereford, isn't it? That is the moment of the FA Cup, probably the Ronnie Radford goal, simply because of the conditions of the day and the fact it was for Hereford against Newcastle, a big club. You know, one of those days. It was meant to be. It was in the stars. Was it a moment of pure instinct that, that, that when those words come forth from within you, is it just instinct? Certainly, because I always say to people, never, ever prepare a commentary. It should be completely off the cuff. And it was. I mean, you don't think of, of words like that at the time like that. You just say what comes into your head, like the boy's a genius or like just look at his face or whatever. Those are truly instinctive moments. Because it wasn't the best goal ever, but no, the words matched the moment perfectly. And that's the one thing I really like. But also there's that moment where you deliver the facts as well, the 18th goal of this memorable season. Uh, did you have that to hand? Was that something you were ready to deliver? Well, that's your preparation. That's what you've been doing it all for. Yeah, that's why you've got thousands of notes in front. I mean, I'm, I like to think I'm a neat writer. So, you know, you can I can read all my notes and I've kept every one, by the way. I've kept every commentary sheet that I've ever prepared a match for. And my first one was Rotherham Norwich in 1981 on for television. And uh, yeah, I can tell you now, Greg Shepherd scored after four minutes, Ronnie Moore equalised, Rodney Fern got made it 2-1. It's in there. That, that, that's why you do all that preparation. So yes, I, I, his 18th goal of the season, it's an automatic thing for a commentator to look for, especially as in that preparation thing. I must remember that one in particular. There are hundreds of facts in there that you know you're probably never, ever going to use, but you still want them there just in case, just like the super over in that cricket match. You thought it was a million to one chance it would come down to one ball after seven months. And for me, you know, it was a, it, for Strachan to score that goal at that time, it was vital. I got the right information. Do you remember the, uh, speaking of the right information, when Vinnie Jones came out and gave the wrong information? And that bit of commentary survives as well. At the start of the video, you can hear you saying to the producer, um, is it confirmed? Is that confirmed? And I think you say, well, we can't just say that if we don't know. Do you remember that part? Well, no, not really. But that, that is a thing where, uh, when I mentioned earlier about your professionalism and the gratitude I had for all the training I'd had. Now, what you do find, with all due respect to them, are a lot of players 
their knowledge is sometimes scant. You know, the information they give is not always accurate. So I sometimes wince when you get ex-players doing our job uh, and they've not had that grounding. They can't be expected to do. They're professional footballers. or Cricketers are probably better because they've longer to prepare and they've been in the game a long time. And it's more of a statistical thing anyway. Um, but the, the last thing we want to do is to give out misinformation. I wince sometimes if I, if I think, oh, I might not be quite right with that. Well, don't use it. If you, if you don't think it's quite right, don't even go there. And fast forward to 1992 then, and when Leeds lifted the league trophy, you, you're around Lee Chapman's house. I was, oh my God, thanks for asking me this one. Yes, uh, we'd been at Sheffield United, of course, and Leeds had won a crazy game, 3-2, with horrible own goals and everything. It was just one of those ridiculous matches. Brian Gale own goal, wasn't it, I think? you know, So awful goals in the match, but it didn't matter. And all of a sudden, dependent on the Liverpool-Manchester United result, you know, Leeds were going to be the champions. So Lee was very accommodating, and Leslie Ash as well. I mean, she she made the, the coffees and the teas, and uh, they showed up. I believe this on, uh, is it, have I got news for you the, not long ago? Because the contrast between the reaction of the Leeds players winning the, the, the title, that, and the contrast when Leicester City won it recently. So we're sat there with a cup of tea and I'm saying, uh, well played, David, to David Bassey. And he's saying, thank you very much. We're very pleased. And uh, Eric Cantona was there and pretending he didn't speak a word of English. Huh? He was sort of grunting and I'm saying, I'm in my terrible French accent, uh, I'm trying to say, Eric, what was the magic moment like for you when you knew we were the champion? <laughs> and he's, he's giving me the Spanish, okay? And, so, you know, and it was hysterical in a way, probably dreadful television, but they showed it as the contrast to Jamie Vardy's house where there's people climbing on the roof and the smoke bombs going off and balloons everywhere. So, uh, it, yes, it, it was um, slightly different, shall we say. Very that, respectful, though. How did that come about? Well, I, I said to Lee something about where you're going to be tonight, you know, because we need to get hold of you. He, he was one of the more eloquent ones, dare I say. Some of them weren't even going to be there. They, they went off in their own directions. Uh, but the ones who lived closest to his house, which was out Berry Bridgeway at that time, were David Batty, Cantona, because he was with staying with one of them, I think. Uh, and who was the other player? Was, I can't even remember. Might have been Gary Speed. I can't it was remember. McAllister was there. McAllister. Oh, well, he was okay. It was okay. So they all turned up. Uh, on the condition that Leslie made coffee and tea and buns and cakes with no gin and tonics of those days in glasses of wine. Did you get much from David Batty that day? No. <laughs> you know what David's like? Uh, he's only ever been to one match at Ellen Road since he finished playing. And uh, I got on well with Bats, actually. I got a little bit out of him, you know. Yeah, it's great and all that sort of thing. You know, he, he just hates watching football, apparently, nowadays. Can you remember the interview talking of uh, the French uh, Chris Kamara and the Luton and Eric Cantona uh, set up when you went to ask questions and you had an interpreter uh, in the form of, was it Lee Chapman? <laughs> yes, it was Lee Chapman. You, oh my, I'd forgotten about that, yeah. Well, Lee was very good, yeah. He, he did offer to be the interpreter. If I used to turn up everywhere. We, we used to do city centre cycling at that time as well. <laughs> Lee Chapman used to turn up on that. He and McAllister were, and, and Strachan were a gift, you know, for, for interviewee. I mean, Strachan could... Uh, make you look silly uh, with the odd answer but they were very cooperative they, they were good lads where Eric I, I've got absolutely very little shall we say out, out, out of him uh, it was a turmoil interview I got to know him a bit better later because he became the manager of the beach soccer 
football team, the French beach soccer. And the tournament was in Marseille, another tournament I covered for FIFA. And he was ranting and raving out the side of the beach there. And we got some wonderful footage of him letting rip at his players. And I got to know him a bit better. I had a meal or two with him. So, uh, yeah, the, 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 the relationship mellowed and blossomed. Can you remember Lee Chapman doing the interpreting? Do you remember what he said to Eric Cantona when you... Uh, probably because he'd played for a team called New York in, in France at Lee. That's why we, we went to him. Uh, I, I would obviously have made the questions very simple anyway. How are you enjoying your football here? You know, and, oh, très bon. You know, so I'd get the... I'd get, not long answers, but Lee was very cooperative. It, it, it looked quite good, actually, you know, and it looked good from from Lee's perspective. Because the the research we found is that you asked, can you ask him how he feels scoring his first goal? And then Lee Chapman turned around and went, how does it feel uh, to yeah, score? Possibly so, very possibly. <laughs> to score your first and goal. And then he went, Très bon. Très bon. Très bon. Everything was très bon. There's a bit of that on the sofa as well. Chapman pulls the same stunt and... Uh, Batty in the background, you can hear him saying, I could have said that. And him and McAllister <laughs> just laughing heads off at the side. Uh, it wasn't riveting television, no. I've had a few. The, the, those are the worst interviews you have to do. I had, I had the same in ice dance. I've, believe it or not, I've actually done ice dancing as well yeah. as a commentator. And the year after Torval and Dean, uh, a Russian couple called Bestimanova and Bukin won it. And uh, I had to use an interpreter for that. And you've got to constantly remember, you, you have to put the microphone there and then take it back. And, oh, dear. It, uh, I could go on about it, but I, I won't do because it's a football programme and not ice dancing, surprisingly enough. <laughs> Would you have liked to interview Marcelo Bielsa? I would. With that set I would, because well. I think he would be intriguing. Now, again, it would have to be done through an interpreter. And I think you would have to listen to every word. But, you know, the, the more you read about the guy, the fact he was watching the training session while he was on the plane, well, how bizarre is that? How could you think of doing something like that? And he does make some extraordinary decisions, but his track record, well, if Guardiola says he's the best, who are we to argue with Guardiola? Uh, so I'd love to interview him. Yeah, I, I really would. But it would have to be... Half an hour, say, not just two to three minutes, because you get nothing. And they don't, for two to three minutes, it's, it's a, just a, a nuisance in their day, probably. But if it's a proper sit-down philosophical chat, I'd love to do it. Which is the one thing he doesn't do. <laughs> Which is the one thing he doesn't do. No, there you go. He'll only do it at a press conference because he, he was, uh, um, he lost trust in a journalist who did a one-to-one -one interview with him and, and uh, presented it the wrong way. So now it's only a press conference. But he... Uh, He's generous in another way because he says anybody who comes into that room, he doesn't care what outlet they're from, he'll stay and answer all their questions until they're done. And um, I've seen it. I was I managed to be in a couple of the press conferences last season and you have these people who've made pilgrimages from the south of France, from Marseille, asking him. And his interpreter, I mean, Lee Chapman got off lightly because his interpreter was is French and he was interpreting from French into Spanish for Marcelo Bielsa, then into English for the room and then back again all around. But he, he made sure you could see all the, the waiting to get the other manager in and everyone's going mad and everyone's on deadlines and Bielsa just says, no, I'm going to answer all these questions until they're done. Yeah, he's, I think he's got a lot going for him. I think he's um, he's probably a more generous man than we know in terms of time, as you mentioned. Uh, he's such a thoughtful man, clearly. You know, I mean, who'd sit on a bucket at the side of a pitch? I mean, who's, if, what made him think about that for, for starters? I don't know anybody else do that. I mean, I'm joking there. But he, he clearly has set ways, set philosophies, which have been hugely successful in part, and not always, of course, because of his time in France, which didn't always work out as, as well as he would have wanted. You just hope you're going to get it right this time. What do you think of those philosophies then and his style? Different. 
different to anybody else, which I like. It's innovative. So, so many of them are photo fit managers nowadays, you know, and they're not necessarily knocking them, but they're rigid in their ways. You know, you've got Steve Bruce suddenly going up to his 11th club now, which would be no different to his 10th club, his 9th club, his 8th club, you know, Sam Allardyce the same. They have set ways of doing things and I'm not knocking them for that at all. If it works for them, good luck. But the way Bielsa goes about it is totally different to anybody else. Uh, it must be hard. I mean, I've been reading uh, Cooper this week saying about, you know, how they're absolutely exhausted because he'll have them in four times a day and they're running God knows how many miles. You just hope that they're not exhausted again. I mean, this has always been the accusation that his teams run out of steam towards the end of a season. And sadly, it proved correct last year. Now, whether it was running out of steam, <coughs> whether it was just bad luck or oh, some players lost confidence, lost form, who knows? But I will never knock him for lack of imagination because he's a, he's a fella who's got fantastic imagination. Do you think maybe they ran out of steam mentally more than physically? Because they were still putting in all the, the stats bore it out. They were still putting in all the uh, all the running towards the end of the season, but maybe it's a mental fatigue. Yeah, I think that's possibly true. I think, uh, especially when that goal went in just before half-time against Derby, you know, they were 2-0 two, two up on aggregate. Coasting, absolutely coasting, really. And Derby in three previous matches hadn't shown against them at all. So psychologically, they should have been absolutely up for it. And then the one catastrophic mistake and they've gone, oh, let's put a seed of doubt. Then off to such a poor start in the second half. And I think they'd gone by then, even though they got a goal back. It is a, a, a mental thing, which is why I'm sorry to come back to it again, where the England cricketers were so strong the other day, particularly Stokes and uh, Archer at the end. I mean, the, the, it's pressure. It's pressure and playing in a match to get to Wembley for a lot of those would have been for the first time, you know. It does get to certain players and it doesn't get to others. And it, it, once one mistake has been made, it can creep in and it sadly it crept into disastrous effect. That's why I wondered about the the history of the club and the, and the weight of the pressure bearing down on them. Do you think that's maybe a hindrance? No, uh, we're back on that same point. I don't, I don't think that players think about that particular. I think they want to create their own history and they're, they're living in their moments as well. They're not living in the past and... They're playing with different players. And the fact that Leeds United were so successful back in the 60s, 70s, whatever, 90s, um, I don't think he's uppermost in there. I think it, when I was a kid, I used to read all the books about all the great players in football and in cricket going back 50, 100 years. I was fascinated by it. I don't think kids are the same now. I don't think that young footballers grow up reading about the great stars of the past. But if you asked a lot of these Leeds United players, they've probably never heard of Billy Bremner. Now, to me, that's absolutely shocking. Um, Jack Charlton, Peter Lorimer, legends in the history of the club. I bet they've never heard of them. Seriously. Do you think that pressure maybe transmits itself through the fans is kind of, I think, what I was I was angling towards, that because the fan expectation of the history is so big. Oh, yes. I mean, and I think, funnily enough, on that day against Derby County, before the game, I was in the hospitality suites working with people like uh, Steve Hodge and Duncan McKenzie and uh, not Mel Sterling, but there were, there were half a dozen of us anyway, and um, Andy Cousins. We were, we were talking about the fact that the crowd would be so massive that it could terrify the Derby players. It worked in reverse. 
I believe it worked in reverse and the Derby players came out, nothing to lose really, whereas the Leeds players, there was a waste of expectation on them and I think that did affect them. I, I don't think they handled it as well as Derby's players. Well, they did. They did for 44 minutes, but then once something went wrong, the whole lot collapsed. I think we, we create those connections, don't we? Because we, the players might not remember Billy Bremner, but we remember the 1987 playoff final against Charlton, which is the same thing we think. Sheridan's free kick, we're in the first division, 10 minutes later, Peter Shirley scored twice and you're in tears. It's my birthday. No, was it really? Sorry about that. And now, again, I was commentating on it. Yeah, Peter Shirley's never ever scored two in his career, I don't think, let alone two in half an hour. Um, but yeah, uh, history is a funny thing, isn't it? As I say, I can relate to legends uh, in cricket, CB Fry. Now, I'm talking about 1900 here. In football, Stanley Matthews. Well, I grew up in the Stanley Matthews era, but before that, there was a guy called Billy Meredith. I read books about them. And I just don't think that today's players, because it's a different world and they've got iPads and they, I don't know what they read, but they, they play games mostly, don't they? They've played games rather than read about history. But when it comes to the atmosphere amongst the fans, that's different. And the expectation level is so ex so high, so expected. At a club like Leeds, where it wouldn't have been at, say, Burton Albion, they have never been there before. Not even Derby County, probably. The expectation level at Leeds is colossal. Do you think they will handle it better this year and will they be better for the experience? No idea. Really no idea because... Uh, if, well, people like Pontus Janssen have now gone anyway. Harrison's come back. There will be one or two new players. It depends who's in the team. At the end. I mean, it looks like he's going to rely on some of the young ones coming through, the Edmondsons and the Stroikes and people like that coming through. So that won't be any problem for them. Phillips handled it well, I thought. He was the best player on the pitch on that, that day against Derby. So... It's hard to say whether if they're ever in that. I hope they're not in that situation because I hope they've gone up automatically. That, that's the ideal, isn't it? Leeds fans dread playoffs, don't they? Let's be honest. You've just mentioned Charlton. Uh, the other playoffs were just uh, Watford. Good gracious me. Uh, Doncaster Rover. Grim. Grim to say the least. You know, not good at playoffs. Yeah, the Watford one was my dad's birthday. Not <laughs> <laughs> down to you then. Yeah, oh, honestly, yeah. I think we are completely jinxing it. Yeah, it'd be good to know that we can uh, maybe overcome those demons and get promoted this time. And do you think Radrazani is the right man to guide the club forward then? I, I like to think he is. I've not met him, but uh, I hear good things about him from the people in the know and, the, and people who have been at the club throughout the other eras. They speak fondly of him, I think I can say that. And they, they seem to believe that his heart is in the right place. Uh, whereas the two previous ones, definitely not, you know. So, uh, yeah, uh, the, the concern is, have they got the money that's necessary nowadays? Yes, you can't compare with some of the Arab owners, uh, obviously the Manchester cities and, of this world and, and clubs like that. Uh, but it's not always just about money. It is about the club being right, the team spirit being right, the chemistry being right between the manager and the players and the fans. And I think Radrick Sarni at least has embraced the fans. I did a night at Ellen Road where he he did turn up, he came and you know it was good to see him there. There is absolutely no way that Chilino or uh, Ken Bates would have thought. No way. Which do you think has been the most enjoyable era for you to cover across your career? Uh, I would have said in the 80s because uh, it was my start in television uh, in 81, 82, even though that was a bad season. Um, the World Cups in 82 and 86 and 90 uh, were fantastic. I, I told you I love Spain. That was my best World Cup. Uh, I loved Mexico as well. That was absolutely brilliant, right through to Italy. Um 
there were some uh, great Leeds moments in in that era as well. I did enjoy the era where I was working for uh, a company called Team Marketing, which was covering the uh, Champions League when Leeds United with your Vidukas and your Kules uh, uh, were playing regularly in Europe. And I was covering Leeds United matches in Rome and Barcelona and Madrid. And that, that was fantastic as well. But if you were pinning me down, I would say the 80s was the best. And what, do you think that's something to do with your own personal circumstances as much as yes, the era? Yes, yes, as much as anything. I mean, the football today is still fantastic and I still love the championship, probably more than the Premier League, to be honest with you. And I, I, I probably see more championship than Premier League football as well. So the standard has gone up, no question about that. But as, as we were talking earlier, why do we do it? We do it for fun because we love it. We love the game. And I don't think there's as much fun now as, as there used to be. Probably understandable, but, you know, not getting to know the players. Not Like I told you, I played in a celebrity golf day this week and there were a dozen ex-footballers. You might not know some of the names because they say they're, they're from bygone days. My, Dean Ashton, you'd remember him. He was playing. Dean Saunders, you remember. Lee Sharp, they were all playing in it as well. And we have such a good laugh at, uh, relating to those times. And it was a fun era. Whereas I don't, I'm sure there isn't. I still get a kick out of going to the World Cups and the under-20 World Cups and under-17s. I loved the under-17s two years ago in India, which I did. I actually commentated on England winning a World Cup, the under-17s, with people like Hudson Adoy and Brewster and Foden. Terrific team. Eight of that team should be playing in the Premier League now. So I really enjoyed that. That was like a bit of a throwback in a way. And they were approachable, by the way. I did do interviews with all of those boys, travelled with them, chatted to them in airports, which I thought was encouraging. So maybe it's coming back a little bit that way. Apart from the money, what do you think's changed then? Do you think it's maybe the news cycle, the the thirst for information, social media maybe? Well, social media, definitely. And you've got to be so careful with that. The relationship which we used to enjoy, that that's, that is a big change that we don't have anymore with the players. Still have it with the managers because they are the focal point of every club. Now, for, for me, obviously, the biggest change has been the television coverage, which is wall-to-wall, country-to-country. You cannot get away from football, even if you wanted to do. You know, you could be in Lithuania and watching Everton versus Watford. You could be anywhere in the world and um, catch up. In fact, we had a producer at Yorkshire Television who went to do a documentary in East Timor. And to do it, they had to grow beards and black up and go in at dead of night on a boat, you know. And they got in at four o'clock in the morning into East Timor, scrambled onto the bank, and they'd made a prearranged meeting with a local person, a mole, if you like, in a hut. And they got in, and inside the hut was a little television monitor, and I was commentating on QPR versus Derby County. <laughs> and so they'd gone to all these great lengths, you know, and they suddenly landed with me again. <laughs> we can't get away from John. Yeah, yeah, can't get away from it. <laughs> so that's where things have changed. You know, you could watch a match in out of Mongolia now. You can watch the Polish First Division, can't you? You know, it's, uh, that's where it's changed. I mean, when I started, football was in black and white, obviously, and you only saw the cup final and England international matches. That was the only football on television. Has it got to a point now where you think the bubble might burst again? No, it could. It could, very definitely. Um, the money is crazy. Far too, far too ridiculous. And I, can we ever claw back from that? I'm not sure we, we can, but we might have to do because clubs could go bust. If the, if the banks decided to pull a plug, the, the selling point for every city has been its football club. When would you ever hear of Accrington, but for Accrington Stanley? When would you ever hear of Plymouth, but for Plymouth Argyle? Probably it's on the football results every time. You'd never hear of anything else going on in those places. Um, 
So the money is still there. And I don't like all these foreign owners particularly. Some are good. Let's not detract from that. Manchester City fella pumping money in, but it, it does make it less competitive. We already know the top six teams are going to be in the Premier League this season, about to start. Almost certainly we know the top six. And that's a shame. There was a time when it could be Southampton or Norwich or Ipswich or Leeds. Um, uh, and it can't go on forever. It, it cannot go on forever. And, and supporters can't afford some of the prices. I know somebody who went to the Champions League final and paid £4,000 for his ticket to watch Liverpool. And then when he got it, it was a fake ticket. Never got in. Um, horrendous. You know, and, and the, the prices have just escalated beyond beyond control. What do you think we've lost? Humour. Uh, relationships between fans and players. That used to be great. You know, you, you used to go to a Leeds United game in the, not just the John Charles era, throughout the Reeve era. Then the players knew all the supporters. They'd even, they'd mix up, they'd have a beer with them on a Saturday night in the local pub, you know. <laughs> you never see a bit of player having a beer nowadays. I'm not saying that's wrong. Um, it's up to them. That's an individual choice. But definitely humour's gone out of the game and definitely that contact between fans, players, the club as a whole has gone out. You know, the supporters club under Eric Carlisle, years gone by, everybody knew everybody and the, the players used to go and attend meetings and forums and not now, very little anyway. All right, two more then we'll wrap it up because we've taken off uh, enough of your time and we're really grateful for it. Thank you. Can Leeds ever break back into that top six in your opinion? Yes, uh, but it would require uh, a rich investor without question. I'm not sure whether Radritani and his cohorts have got that amount of money. Uh, even if they haven't, they could still get into the Premier League. And once you're into the Premier League, it's a whole different ball game because there is more money available. So, you know, it's still a struggle for the likes of Huddersfield to go up because their fan base isn't great. But if Leeds got up and were regularly pulling in 30,000, 40,000 and with the money that filters through from the Premier League, then at least they could get into it just as Wolves did last year, the thing is then to cement your place. Then you need to attract more investors. But the the goodwill is there. It's a rich city as Leeds. If you go around Leeds, there's a lot of money there. Uh, and so the potential is unquestionable. It's a question of that big step. And that big step is getting out of the championship into the opportunity through the, the window of opportunity into the Premier League. And finally then, is it really the best job in the world? No. Oh. It's the one consistent thing in my life, probably, that I've always said I've been blessed to have the best job in the world from August 17, 1959. And where are we now? July 2019. I have never had a day where I've not looked forward to going to work or to, to doing what I do uh, because to be paid, which I am occasionally, for watching sport, for travelling the world, you wouldn't swap that for anything with anybody. Best job in the world without doubt. John Helm, thank you very much. My pleasure. We did have one more. The world record. Oh, crack it. Go on then. Okay, yeah. Can you still do it? The world record. Well, I can. Uh, and I'm, I, I come up, I'm honest about this every time. This was from the, when, my first year in television in 1981-82. I used to read the football results on BBC Radio when James Alexander Gordon was unavailable. And people used to ask me in the pub on a Saturday night, how did Exeter go on or Fulham or whoever? And I could remember them. So just as a joke in this uh, brain of sport, uh, this is how it happened. Um, we, on Radio 2, as it was at the time, had to put up a team against the Braid of Sport winners. 
And we had to sit and examine the office. And the three winners were Desmond Lynham, Christopher Martin Jenkins and myself. We were the three who got the most points. So Peter Jones was the question master. When it came to my question, just as a joke, I said to him, Josie, when it comes to me, just ask me to name all the teams in the county cricket championships. Oh, I said, John Helm. Can you name all the uh, 18 teams in the county cricket championships? I said, well, yeah, there's Derbyshire, Durham, Essex, Glamour, Gloucestershire, Hampshire, Kent, Lancashire, Leicester, Middlesex, North, North, Somerset, Surrey, Sussex, Warwick, Worcester, Yorkshire, which took about three seconds. Oh, right, okay. So then he said, uh, all right, clever so-and-so. Can you name all the 36 teams in the rugby league? I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Barrow, Batley, Brackpool, Bradford, Bramley, Cardiff, Carlisle, Castleford, Chorley, Dewsbury, Doncaster, Featherstone, Fulham, Halifax, Huddersfield, Hull, Hulkingston, Rovers, Hunslet, Heighton, Keighley, Leeds, Leeds, Nottingham, Oldham, Rochdale, Runcastle, Elders, Salford, Sheffield, Swinton, Chaffin, Wakefield, Warrington, Whitehaven, Windows, Wigan, Workington, and York. Oh, he said, well, that's all right for half a point. <laughs> for a full point, can you name all the 92 clubs in the Football League? So bear in mind, this was 1981-82. I'd be amazed to know it's not changed since. There's no Kidderminster Harriers in here or Dagenham and Redbridge. So at the time, it was... Arsenal, Aston Villa, Birmingham, Brighton, Coventry, Evans, Leeds, Liverpool, Man City, Man United, Middlesbrough, Nottingham Forest, Notts County, Southampton, Stoke, Sunderland, Swansea, Tottenham, West Brom, Sam Wolves, Barsley, Batten, Bolton, Cambridge, Cardiff, Charlton, Chelsea, Crystal Bath, Derby, Grimsley, Leicester, Luton, Castle, Norwich, Oldham, Warnie, QPR, Rotherham, Sheffield, Wednesday, Shrewsbury, Watford, Wrexham, Brentford, Bristol, Bristol Rose, Burnley, Carl, Chester, Chesterfield, Doncaster, Fulham, Gilling, Huddersfield, Lincoln, Millwall, Newport, Oxford, Plum, Porter, Preston, Reading, South East, Windham, Walter, Wimbledon, Atkinson, Oldshot, Barnet, Blackwood, Bournemouth, Bradford, Berry Coles, the crew, Down, Halifax, Hartlepool, Herod, Stockport, Talkie, Chambay, Wigan, Wickham, and York, which took at those days 26 seconds. But I'm, I'm much older now, so sorry about that. Brilliant. I think that deserves a round of applause. Brilliant. Oh, thank you. And John Hell, thank you again so thank much. You. Thank you. The Square Ball Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.